You're listening to a University College Dublin Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, the first of two podcasts from After the War, Patterns of Commemorating the Great War, a symposium which took place in Boston College in July 2016. The event was funded by the UCD Decade of Centenaries program, the UCD Humanities Institute, and run by the Irish Memory Studies Network. In this podcast, a keynote lecture by Professor Fran Brereton from Queen's University, Belfast. Her lecture, Poetry and Sacrifice, 1912, 1914, 1916, was introduced by Dr. Tom Walker from the School of English at Trinity College, Dublin. It's my uh, great pleasure to introduce... Uh as a keynote lecturer, uh, Professor Fran Britton um, from Queen's University, Belfast. I suppose trying to describe Fran's work, um, which ranges very widely over British and Irish poetry in the 20th and, and, and right up to the present and the 21st century, and with particular interest in, I suppose, the kind of legacies of the poetry of the First World War in, in Irish poetry, um, that kind of ambiguous place of, of the Great War within Irish culture and, and Irish memory, I'd, so, I'd see her work as kind of marked by two particular uh, kind of qualities, um, one of which is that I think she's been a particularly kind of subtle reader of the way in which subsequent writers have responded to the Great War and its pressures, um, particularly in relation to the kind of story of Northern Irish poetry over the last 30 or 40 years or so, um, after she wrote her um, published her important first book, The Great War in Irish Poetry. She followed it up with a, a study of Michael Longley, which in some ways, because of Longley's interest in, in, in obvious interest in not only the poetry of conflict, but also the First World War in both a, a personal and a literary sense, um, you know, she, she really kind of kept going with that um, story about, I suppose, the legacy of the First World War in Irish culture. And as another aspect of, of her work, I think, is what we might kind of fashionably call its archipelagic um, kind of uh, interests in thinking about Irish poetry and thinking about British poetry, you know, Scottish, English poetry, um, Northern Irish poetry. She's been a, a very kind of careful person in terms, of, uh, in terms of work, being very careful in terms of trying to kind of think through the complications of these kind of in- interrelated, uh, po- you know, political dispensations and traditions and uh, identities um, and the way that writers have negotiated with those and, and used those um, in their work. Um, and I suppose the third aspect of her work that I think has, has, has you know, marked her criticism uh, right from the start and that she brings to bear on her work on the, on the First World War II is a, a kind of continuing concern with the way in which the literary, the formal um, works in poetry, that these are not just kind of texts that kind of reflect the world, but they are texts that form the world and that negotiate with the possibilities of, of form um, in being poems and being concerned with the way that poems make their way in the world, the way that poems kind of might almost be a kind of form of knowledge in themselves. So it's with great pleasure I introduce uh, Fran today and her um, lecture under the title Poetry and Sacrifice, 1912, 1914, 1916. Thanks very much, Tom. I have to begin with 
an apology. Um, I changed both lecture and title for reasons really that were beyond my control. I feel guilty about standing up to give a keynote at a conference called After the War because I am in the war. I'm sorry. Um, I'm in the war and I'm pre-war. Um, but what I hope is that by showing perhaps some connections, relations that were occurring um, in the years I'm, I've given here, that they might actually cause us to rethink some of what's happened subsequently as well. Um, so the kind of patterns that emerge in the literature of the wartime period, I think sometimes sit at odds with the way we've seen a politicisation of its aftermath. Um, and recklessly, I'm going to begin with Easter 1916, which is on your handout, um, nothing ventured. Um, <laughs> when Yeats wrote Easter 1916, as Nicholas Green has pointed out, in choosing that title rather than April 1916, Dublin 1916, Ireland 1916. He was very obviously drawing on the associations intended in the rising in choosing that time. So the, the rebellion was a resurrection. It was the rebirth of the nation. Easter, the movable feast that's always the same, carries associations beyond simply this Easter 1916 to mark a cyclical pattern of sacrifice and renewal. It's a choice that was made again of course, earlier this year in celebrating the 100th anniversary at Easter weekend, not on the actual date. The sacrificial theme is central to the writings of most obviously, as here, um, Podrick Pierce, and his self-perception as a Christ figure is also key to the rising success and failure strategy. That's something that's been much written about. So renunciation, this is from 1910, anticipates the sacrifice that will be made, the hardening of heart, necessary for single-minded pursuit of an ideal, and it's a sentiment that Yeats then captures in too long a sacrifice can make stone of the heart. I blinded my eyes, I closed my ears, I hardened my heart, and I smothered my desire. I have turned my face to this road before me, to the deed that I see, and the death I shall die. Again, very famously, um, he anticipates in poems such as The Mother, in advance, the terms by which the rising would be remembered. Um, that's done with varying degrees of success in the wartime period. The other obvious um, success story there is something like Binion's For the Fallen, which is actually written very early in about September 1914, They Shall Grow Not Old, as we that are left grow old. So in The Mother, he says, the generations shall remember them and call them blessed, or in The Rebel, um, he's got these kind of biblical echoes. I could have borne stripes on my body rather than the shame of my people. I say to my masters, beware of the thing that is coming. Beware of the risen people. And again, the Easter association. Now, Easter 1916 is the poem he can't write, but it's anticipated, of course, by Christmas 1915. O king that was born, set bondsmen free in the coming battle help the gale, um, and much of what he's writing in this period is, and I'll come back to this, coloured by the wider kind of sensibility in Europe at the time. So Easter, in Yeats' title, is evocative, and so is the dating and numbering in the poem. It enters into dialogue with key moments in Yeats's own writing. So Green has said this too. He was aware, and when Yeats was writing Easter 1916, of the way it talked back, to his earlier poem, September 1913. The first date is ordinary time, if you like, September. The second is sacramental, Easter. 
In September 1913, Yeats laments a romantic island as dead and gone. Easter 1916 marks its resurgence in a new and terrible beauty. Both poems are preoccupied with numbers, and I've been obsessed with numbers through the centenary years. I can't get past it um, in some ways. The counting of September 1913, the debased adding of the halfpence to the pence and prayer to shivering prayer, becomes in Easter 1916 the heroic numbering, yet I number him. In the song, he says of O'Leary, our part is to save in Easter 1916 in a very different sense because the poem is a memorial, it's to preserve rather than the play on being saved or not saved here. Comedy gives way to tragedy. The delirium of the brave that's mourned in September 1913 as having gone becomes the bewilderment of the 1916 rebels who inherit this legacy. Playing on the Renaissance definition of poetry itself as numbers, Easter 1916 counts in a different sense too, encoding the rising's date in the four sections here of 1624-1624 lines. It literally counts in its lines the 16 dead men. Uh, three years later, Yeats's 1919, from the perspective of the War of Independence, talks back to Easter 1916, as Easter 1916 talked back to September 1913. Yeats is sequencing history and his own development, in other words, in a numerical pattern of threes. 19 turns 16 on its head, visually as, as well as anything else. Um, you can see that serving Heaney well much later in the move from 1966 to 1969. So if you look at a collection like North, you've got two title poems side by side, Orange Rum to Tyrone, 1966, and Summer, 1969. And the context, I think, is one where Heaney is conscious of Yeats's movement through those cycles of threes. Um, he's also conscious, I think, of Yeats's last poems, dated 1936 to 39, and 1939 as another redefining historical moment. So from 1916's emergence of a terrible beauty, in 1919, ingenious lovely things are gone. From we know their dream enough to know they dreamed and are dead in Easter 1916 to the nightmare that rides upon sleep. The speaker who repents his mocking tale or jibe in Easter 1916 now adopts a much more embittered collective voice, mockery of the great, the wise, the good. We traffic in mockery. In the living stream of Easter 1916, a horse hoof slides on the brim and a horse plashes within it. By 1919, the horses of delicate, sensitive ear or tossing mane, wearied running round and round in their courses, all break and vanish, and evil gathers head, so that much more apocalyptic sensibility in Yeats that comes at the end of the First World War and into the Anglo-Irish War. So the association of those dates with Yeats is incredibly powerful. They obliterate the dates with which everybody has been preoccupied, namely 1914-18, and I think they do so in one sense very deliberately. The poems are tied to the Irish story, to key defining moments from, say, September, the Dublin lockout of 1913, through the Easter Rising into the um, Anglo-Irish War. 1916 is symbolic, it's a magic number, has been talked about earlier for different kinds of Irishmen. 
But I want to suggest another subtext to Easter 1916, which evokes dates less visible in Yeats. Now, at the point where 1919 first appeared, in September 1921, it was entitled Thoughts Upon the Present State of the World, and it has within it the lines, we who seven years ago talked of honour and of truth, shriek with pleasure if we show the weasel's twist, the weasel's tooth. If you call the poem 1919, the date there is 1912, which is an interesting choice in the sense of Yeats, we who seven years ago. Its original publication, that date would have absolutely been understood as the first year of the war, um, as the loss of innocence, we who seven years ago talked of honour and truth, and implicitly that that kind of rhetoric has now gone. 1914, a very obvious date of significance on the world stage, 1912, of course, a highly significant one on the Irish stage. And when Yeats writes Easter 1916, He's doing so in a context, unfortunately I'll put on the hand up for you, where a poem a few years earlier had received quite extraordinary levels of press coverage, namely Rudyard Kipling's Ulster, later um, titled Ulster 1912, which for anybody who's lucky enough not to know it, I have put <coughs> on the handout for you. And perhaps we might read Yeats's Easter 1916 and the titled dated poems either side of it as engaged in a quarrel with what Kipling stands for both before and during the First World War. Um, both poems deploy the word sacrifice, but they do so, I think, in quite different ways. Now, um, I think Kurt earlier mentioned, you know, sort of unlikely bedfellows um, Yeats and Kipling are not talked about together. They were born in the same year. They led oddly parallel lives, but they are not spoken about um, together. Actually, W.H. Auden invented a game that he called Purgatory Mates. Um, so you had to choose two people of such a different character. They would naturally hate each other. They were condemned to live together in purgatory until they reached a state of mutual love. Um, his examples were T.S. Eliot and Walt Whitman. Tolstoy and Oscar Wilde. Which, um, anyway, so I'm putting Yeats and Kipling there as another such, you know, the, the Irish nationalist versus the Anglo-Indian imperialist. Partly I want to put them in dialogue because people don't do so. Um, they're the first two English language winners of the Nobel Prize. They're both obsessed with India. There are all sorts of reasons to do it. And actually there's a, a book that's recently come out about the, um, both of them working at the fin de siècle. Um, they died three years apart, serendipitously for me. Um, Kipling, who is the slightly younger man, by a few months, I think. Um, Kipling in January 1936, Yeats, of course, in January 1939. Um, every point of connection between them manifests an extreme divergence in views on everything, really, from politics to literature to music hall to theosophy to W.E. Henley's free verse. Um, Yeats writes to his father... I just, I won't quote all of this, generalisation creates rhetoric, wins immediate popularity, organise the mass, gives political success, Kipling's poetry, Macaulay's essays. And it's easy to see why Kipling serves as a negative example for Yeats, given Yeats's opposition to the masses, to rhetoric, to generalisation, to journalism, all the traits he associates with English influence and culture. Um, he also notes that latterly Kipling has turned himself into a kind of imperialist journalist in prose and verse. Everything 
that Yeats disliked about the progress of Kipling's career and the kind of writer Kipling became, as also about his politics, is encapsulated in the publication and reception of Ulster 1912. It's a poem which one might reasonably argue in its mechanical rhythms, creates rhetoric, wins popularity in certain quarters, organised the masses, gives political success. Ulster 1912 first appeared in the Morning Post on the 9th of April 1912, Easter Tuesday, although not collected till some years later. It appears in Kipling's volume of First World War Poems um, from 1919, the years between. The publication of the poem became a story that led to its reprinting in part or in whole in a number of Irish papers in the days that followed. It was discussed in the House of Commons, where a Liberal MP asked if Kipling would be prosecuted for producing seditious verse in response to which James Craig suggested he should recite the poem to enable the full understanding of the House. And William Redmond quipped, will the right honourable gentle bear in mind that in general opinion this doggerel ought not to be called verse at all. I'm in some sympathy with Redmond and this and other areas. It provoked in Ireland, I'm not going to read Ulster 1912, it's on the handout, you know, what need of further lies, we are the sacrifice. I, I think we've probably all heard a sufficient number of times. Kipling's poem invokes the rhetoric of sacrifice, honour and truth. And in stark contrast to Pierce's ideas of sacrifice, it's in the anti-Catholic sentiment of Ulster 1912 that was to prove the most controversial aspect of the poem, we know the hells declared for such as serve not Rome. Um, the epigraph quotes from Isaiah, the call to arms, were also inflammatory. Now, A.E. wrote an open letter um, in response to this. Tom Kettle, later to be killed on the Somme in 1916, also wrote a poem in response to it. Um, and you can see, I'm just... I, partly I like this because largest vessel afloat gives you a sort of grounding of the, the news cycle was going to change quite dramatically um, and quite soon after this. Now what A.E. says in his open letter, I set my knowledge, the knowledge of a lifetime against your ignorance. You've used your genius to do Ireland and its people wrong. If there was a high court of poetry, they would hack the golden spurs from your heels and turn you out of court. You had the ear of the world, you poisoned it with prejudice and ignorance. You had the power of song and you've always used it on behalf of the strong against the weak so that Kipling in effect is trying to bully the time into doing what he once. Um, Tom Kettle also counters him with, I mean, it's actually an awful poem with all due respect, but um, it's yeah, interesting because in this, a Lenten island is about to come to fruition in the resurrection of her true self. And I want to bear in mind that this is a poem written and widely published in Ireland in 1912, Easter week, very much in the mode of some of the writings later associated with 1916, the Easter sacrifice that will bring redemption, the return of nobility. And Kipling's unionist, one law, one land, one throne, become one dream, one doom in Kettle, uh, more akin to the single-minded one purpose alone that's later evoked by Yeats. I, I don't want to inflict all of it on you, but um, I, I mean, it becomes, it, it's just problematically sectarian as, as Kipling's own poem in some ways. Ulster is ours, not yours is ours to have and hold. Um, we keep the elder faith, not slain by Cromwell's sword and, and so on. Now, Yeats didn't enter the fray here in the Irish press. Um, he was very interested, though, in the progress of the Home Rule legislation being mooted from early 1912. 
And I don't think he was immune to Protestant fears about Catholic ambitions to control free thought in an independent island, but he was aware that this could be manipulated for political ends. In April, he put his name to a public letter from 56 Irish Protestants. As Protestants resident in Dublin, we desire to mark otherwise than by mere words our disapproval of the statement that Protestants in the southern parts of Ireland live in fear of their Catholic neighbours. Now, Kipling, undeterred by hostility from Irish quarters, entered the arena again in Easter 1914 in a, a short-lived... He signed the British Covenant Declaration in March 1914. He campaigned for the League of British Covenanters. Um, his Tunbridge Wells speech in May 1914 was published by the Daily Express. Rudyard Kipling's indictment of the government... This contribution appeared in The Covenanter, a London publication that seems only to have survived through one issue because everything changed in the summer of 1914 and this story got knocked, um, say, off the cycle. Um, this poem was reprinted in The Times, The Daily Telegraph, um, and again collected with his First World War poems in the years between. So Easter 1916, when it comes along... I think has behind it, unconsciously or otherwise, some awareness of sacrificial rhetoric that surfaced in Easter 1912, also in Easter 1914. If you look at Yeats's Easter 1916, he dates the poem at the end, September 25th, 1916. It, it means he's deliberately looking back to September 1913 in doing that, but we could bear in mind too that he's only, um, it's only three days off the fourth anniversary of September 1912, Ulster Day. It's two years on from the passing into law of the Home Rule Bill in September 1914, suspended, of course, for the duration of the war. The relentlessly quoted in the press lines by Kipling, what need of further lies, we, Ulster Unionism, obviously, are the sacrifice, becomes the much more complex, too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. And incidentally, it's the first use by Yeats of the word sacrifice in his poems. He uses it once more um, later on in Parnell's funeral. Um, and Kipling also intervened with a terrible, terrible poem about... Uh, Ireland is toxic for Kipling. Every time he touches it, he kind of gets it wrong. Um, the language of resistance in Kipling's poem, we stand, we cleave, we shall not yield, contrasts with Yeats's insistence on movement, fluidity and change. The brash confidence of what answer from the north, one law, one land, one throne, is light years away from a rhythmically echoing but much more profound question and answer in Yeats, oh, when may it suffice? That is heaven's part. England's act and deed in betraying the faith in Ulster 1912 contrasts, ironically enough, given the politics involved with the controversial lines in Yeats's Easter 1916, for England may keep faith for all that is done and said. The only direct allusion in the poem to the context of the First World War and to the context of home rule, although I think it's uh, evident in other ways. Kipling, Ulster 1912, is a mechanical rhythm subordinate to rhetoric. It is a relentless, unvarying, iambic drum. It is meant to be memorable in, in the easiest possible way, do you see what I mean? There are a few instances of that baseline pattern in Easter 1916 where it's unequivocal. Um, not many until her voice grew shrill, um, enchanted to a stone from cloud to tumbling cloud. Um, 
for England may keep faith wherever green is worn. So those lines in Yeats' poem feel rhythmically like it's pulled towards what Easter 1916 knows it can't become, that kind of simple monument um, with, with a certain kind of political simplicity behind it too. <coughs> The rhythmical complexities that characterise Easter 1916 put a public sort of Kipling-esque mode in tension with private doubt. There's a struggle there between an individual or personal response in Yeats's desire to shape collective memory and the pressures of history that are actually shaping the poem too, as against the much cruder attempt in Kipling simply to bully the time with that unequivocal collective voice, the presumption to be able to speak for and about a, a, a group, if you like. As with the Easter of the title, a movable feast that's always the same, Easter 1916 encapsulates, even in its rhythms, the tension between continuity and change. It evokes and discards mechanical rhythm and mass appeal, and it reappropriates the misused and misapplied language of the imperialist and rethinks how it might work. Its complex positioning in relation to the rising is so often noted, but the dialogue with, I think, a Kipling-esque mode, its very careful handling of sacrifice, suggests a wider engagement, both with the politics of unionism and with the First World War. It's notable, too, that for all Yeats claimed to ignore the First World War, um, the notorious comments about um, the seven sleepers and some blunderer has driven his car onto the wrong side of the road, that is all um, it is dismissive of it. The echoes of Kipling in Yeats between 1916 and 1922 are as unmistakable as they're also radically redefined in Yeats. Think of every evil power in Kipling and evil gathers head in Yeats between Kipling's rapine hate, the laws we made and guard, and one of Yeats's first world war poems, an Irish airman foresees his death, those that I fight I do not hate, those that I guard I do not love. In Kipling's poem, oppression, wrong and greed are loosed to rule our fate. In Yeats's elegy for Robert Gregory, fate comes from a lonely impulse of delight albeit he comes in the later reprisals, of course, one of the cheated dead. And it's mere anarchy that's loosed upon the world in Yeats's differently apocalyptic 11th hour poem, which is The Second Coming. Now, Alvin Jackson has pointed out, of course, that 1916 as that magic number to different types of Irishmen following the Rising and the Somme and sacrifice, similarly, I think, as history has shown, is something on which neither one side nor the other has particular purchase. The sacrifice on the Somme in 1916 is as much a founding myth for Northern Ireland as the rising for the Republic. Where Yeats questions whether the ideological single-mindedness of the rising's leaders may in some ways compromise their humanity might prove restrictive in the future, Kipling is speaking for a group who are not so much making a sacrifice as, he argues, being sacrificed. Kipling's We Are the Sacrifice takes on a new and different emotional resonance for Ulsterman after the 1st of July 1916, for reasons we've heard, where for all the willingness to serve in the Great War, the experience of the Somme, of soldiers treated as so much collateral damage, suggests a different kind of humanity at work, which it is very, very difficult, has been discussed, for Ulster Unionism to articulate, and it doesn't articulate that anywhere in its literary 
production through the 20th century. How that phrase might reverberate in 2016. What need of further lies we are the sacrifice. Let's wait and see, I suppose. Um, To bring us full circle on layers of irony here, Kipling, we recall, is the person who chose, if I can find it, who chose the phrase that's the inscription on every stone of remembrance. Um, Kipling was part of the Imperial War Graves Commission. Um, if we look at where he drew this, um, their name liveth, it's not come out very clearly, their name liveth forevermore. The passage from which he drew the phrase is remarkably akin to those terms of remembrance um, for Easter 1916, generations shall remember them and call them blessed, as well as evocative of Kipling's own home rule rhetoric. Um, it's from Ecclesiasticus, so it's actually not in the, um, I've forgotten the term. But it's not in the official Bible if you're not Catholic, is what I'm very badly saying. Um, their glory shall not be blotted out, their bodies are buried in peace, but their name liveth forevermore. The people will tell of the word, their wisdom, which is effectively what Pierce is saying, and the congregation will show forth their praise. Now, in one sense, the events of 1916 have historically eclipsed, in some respects, 1912, even though Easter week in 1912 evoked the same rhetoric of sacrifice, renewal, both north and south. But whether 1916 is synonymous with the rising, because the year becomes the event in Yeats on the only other occasion on which he mentions it, come gather round me players all, um, come praise 1916, um, the, the event is it's kind of the year is shorthand for the event. Um, whether this has tended to eclipse other poetic voices from the period is something increasingly subject to exploration. Um, A.E., for instance, is the author of a commemorative poem which tries directly to bring the rising and the First World War together. Um, I can't think of another instance of someone doing this directly. Um, and, and it's comes out not long after Yeats's Easter 1916. Um, it's much more obviously inclusive than other writers of the time because he's commemorating its sixth stanza poem, um, Easter 1916, Martyrs, Three Irishmen Killed on the Western Front, and very different in that sense from what Yeats was doing a few months earlier. I, my problem with it has always been that I think the poem enshrines rather than overcomes division. It feels a little either or. Here's a stanza for the rising, and here's one for the song, and here's another one for the rising. So they get the same number of lines each, but actually, the way people read, you prioritise from left to right, so there's a hierarchy at work anyway, you know, regardless of how you, you try and do it. And it, it splits into two. A narrative that intertextually reveals more by way of connection than it does mutual exclusivity. So something like Patrick Pierce's poetry very obviously feeds into Yeats's Easter 1916. It belongs absolutely in a First World War context too, since Pierce is sharing rhetoric and sentiment with the quintessentially English poet Rupert Brooke, as well as actually with Kipling. So this is um, a very famous quotation, of course, by Yes, on the subject of the First World War, the last six months have been the most glorious in the history of Europe. It is good for the world that such things should be done. The old heart of the earth needed to be warmed with the red wine of the battlefields. Such august homage was never offered to God as this, millions of lives given gladly for love of country. Ireland will not find Christ's peace until she's taken Christ's sword. What peace she has known in these latter days has been the devil's peace, peace with sin, peace with dishonour. And if you look at 
very much the very famous 1914 sonnets by Rupert Brooke, they're essentially saying the same thing. Um, God be thanked who has matched us with his hour, caught our youth, wakened us from sleeping, turned as swimmers into cleanness leaping, glad from a world grown old and cold and weary. Um, Honour has come back again in the very famous sonnet, The Dead. Honour has come back as a king to earth. Within the writings of Ireland's soldier poets themselves, I think we also see some unconscious connections as well as revealing silences that complicate the picture much more than A's well-meaning attempt to articulate. The obvious managers to do, and I'm going to pick a couple of instances um, in the interest of time that I think look back to some of the rhetoric and some of the ideas I've been talking about in Yeats and Kipling. Um, first is the, the Monk Gibbon. Um, Monk Gibbon, a soldier poet um, and one of the few Irish First World War memoirists, I suppose. Um, and as he says in that memoir, which didn't come out until the 1960s, and again, it's interesting that it only emerges after um, 1966, I suppose, or the, the change that the 60s brought about. So he says in his memoir, when war broke out, my first thought was, good may come out of this. It is your opportunity to become a great national poet. Such is the literary megalomania of the very young. But in that same memoir, he describes at length, and that's really for him the point of writing it post the 1966 commemorations, how his role in suppressing the Easter Rising caused a crisis of conscience. Now, Monk Gibbon was unlucky because he happened to be back here on leave when the Rising took place, and it is the obligation then of a serving British soldier to go and report to the nearest barracks and help, which is what he did. Um, so he's the Irishman in British Army uniform, helping to suppress his country's bid for independence. The Rising effectively ended his career in active soldiering. He was from an ardently unionist family by background, but he transferred his sympathies to Sinn Féin after the murder of Sheehy Skeffington. He then wrote a letter of resignation to the British Army, which I need not tell you, you can't do that. You know, sorry, I'll give you a month's notice. Um, he entered hospital with shell shock, so there are some sort of parallels. He makes them himself with what happened to Sassoon um, a year later, and he was subsequently deemed fit only for home service. Now, he wrote a lot of poetry. I, I don't know if anybody knows any of it. The poetry doesn't, I think, reveal any of the contradictions felt in his own position, except in one crucial way. He closes off experience, he shuts down and shuts out that difficulty as presumably the only way he can cope with it. So if you look at a poem like Soldiering, which is one of the few where he actually talks about that experience, we have hardened our hearts within us, our hearts are grown very hard, hard words in our mouths are spoken, harder the roads we tread, We've forgotten softness, we've put by those things, hard days, hard nights before us, and a hard bed, and the, the point being our hearts are hardened against them, lest they should break. So it's about the kind of discipline that is required, I suppose, in soldiering. Beyond that, it's about, I think, what he can't bear to look at. Um, and it, there's a difficulty sometimes in people in coming to look at Irish First World War poetry and not finding in it the complexity that is everywhere manifest in the political situation. I think, you know, Yeats handles it wonderfully, but is seldom talked about directly in relation to the First World War. 
Having said that, it's notable that in soldiering, and in a poem like this, he's absorbed the rhetoric not of the Western Front, this is a post-war poem that's written in the 1920s, but this is the rhetoric of the Easter Rising, actually. This is Patrick Pierce's Hardening of the Heart in Renunciation from 1910. Hardening one's heart not for the cause one serves here, because sacrifice is, um, is not what he's seeking, but it's against the encroachment of a brutal reality. You sacrifice your humanity in order to survive. The vast majority of, po of his poems don't mention war. They tend to keep to the same theme, and briefly that theme is, the world has turned against beauty, but I stand with it, however much that makes me an exile from ordinary life, and poem after poem is effectively the, the same as that. There's none of the political certainty that underpins the idea of sacrifice that played out so powerfully in the rising. Instead, there's an avoidance of politics altogether, looking away from the site of conflict. Sometimes that avoidance of engagement with national or nationalist politics is very deliberate, and it comes from some awareness in advance of the fact, which is heartbreaking really, of what history will do and did do to the reputations of those Irishmen from nationalist background who served in the British Army. That is very evidently the case with Tom Kettle, who I spoke about earlier, who leapt into the, the fray against Kipling in 1912. A barrister, poet and Home Rule MP who joined up in 1914 and was killed on the Somme in 1916. Kettle remarked with some bitterness after the Easter Rising, these men will go down in history as heroes and martyrs and I will go down, if I go down at all, as a bloody British officer. And, and to some extent was proven right by that, although a process of redress began in the 1960s. In the best known of his poems, To My Daughter Betty, written just before he was killed in September 1916, he repositions that one dream, one doom of the earlier poem against Kipling and of the kind of Easter renewal rhetoric he invoked for Ireland. Um, he's talking about um, why he served, in effect, um, of what people will say. They'll give you rhyme and reason. Some will call the thing sublime, and some decry it in a knowing tone. So here, while the mad guns curse overhead, and tired men sigh with mud for couch and floor, know that we fools, now with the foolish dead, died not for flag, nor king, nor emperor, but for a dream born in a herdsman's shed, and for the secret scripture of the poor. There's some moral certainty to this. I think there's also very deliberate historical political ambiguity as regards the national question, not for flag, nor king, nor emperor. It's a move away from the Easter renewal of his 1912 response to Kipling, or from Yeats's enough to know they dreamed and are dead to a rather different kind of dream born in a herdsman's shed. I thought it was interesting, the comment earlier that socialism might be a way out of a certain kind of bind. Um, I think this is written with a full consciousness of the kind of poetry associated with the rising. I suspect, although I don't know for sure, with some awareness of the very famous speech by Pierce in August 1915 at the grave of O'Donovan Rosser. You know their speech, the fools, the fools, the fools, they have left us our Fenian dead. And while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland unfree shall never be at peace. 
but it comes also out of his own support for the Dublin 1913 strike. It flies the flag not for Ireland in the way he'd done in 1912, but for democracy, for the sufferings of the poor, for human rights and equalities, the things that have tended to be forgotten in the ensuing politicisation of memory of the war. And lastly, since I cannot not mention the best <coughs> known of Ireland's soldier poets, here is another 1916 poem written by Francis Ledwidge, nationalist sympathiser, in fact not even nationalist of the, John, of the Redmond persuasion, um, but much more actually the, the friend of, of those who brought about the rising. Fresh from the horrors of the First World War battlefields, he wrote an elegy for his friend Thomas Macdonough, who's executed after the rising. He shall not hear the bittern cry in the wild sky where he has lain, nor voices of the sweet birds above the wailing of the rain. Nor shall he know when loud march blows through slanting snows her fanfare shrill, blowing to flame the golden cup of many an upset daffodil. But when the dark cow leaves the moor and pastures poor with greedy weeds, perhaps he'll hear her low at morn, lifting her horn in pleasant meads. Now, A.E. attempt, as I said, to commemorate both the Irish war dead and the dead of the rising in that sort of double layout poem. This, I think, is much more subtle. Written in army barracks and with Ledwidge overtly grieving for MacDonough, it's a poem that also contains within it an implicit lament for the dead of the First World War. The wailing of the rain, loud march, blowing to flame, the fanfare shrill. This is the language of the First World War, of the Western Front spring offensives, of the call to arms, the wailing of shellfire, the stark contrast with birdsong, familiar from other war poets such as Owen Rosenberg or Thomas. If we score out the title, it becomes a self-elegiac war poem that anticipates Ledwidge's own death. He was blown to bits um, a year later. It's not quite sure of its pastoral healing. It doesn't offer any traditional consolation of God or country or duty. It makes no judgment on the sacrifice made either by the subject or by the author of the poem. But I think it manages to encompass more by saying less, anticipating the possibility of pastures poor becoming pleasant meads. And again, that pastures poor and the implications of that, thinking about what Tom Kettle is saying at the same time. This isn't the Easter sacrifice, but it is the hope of a springtime renewal that he wasn't to see. So we have a poem which eschews some of the rhetoric of 1916, which can be written in the way it's written only, I think, because of Ledwidge's experience serving in the British Army and the First World War, but is yet probably the most poignant elegy I know for one of the dead of the Easter 1916 rising. In a poem from his 1979 collection, Fieldwork, Seamus Heaney describes Francis Ledwidge as our dead enigma in you, our dead enigma, all the strains crisscross in useless equilibrium. And as the wind tunes through this vigilant bronze is at the Port Stewart War Memorial, um, I hear again the shore confusing drum you followed from Boyne Water to the Balkans, but miss the twilight note your flute should sound. You were not keyed or pitched like these true blue ones, though all of you can sort now underground. Various echoes here um, of Wilfred Owen. There's, um, um, it, it, there's an association of the First World War with Protestantism and with the Unionist narrative that um, is, is probably more of a, a reflection of when it was written um, and 
probably fair to put it in the context of the 1970s too. Ledwidge as a dead enigma, I think, reflects truth not about Francis Ledwidge, but about the way in which, after the war, mutually exclusive narratives of sacrifice emerged in unionism and nationalism, north and south. What is puzzling to Heaney about Ledwidge in the post-Troubles context of Northern Ireland is more readily explicable, I think, in Ledwidge's own time. And I was fascinated, somebody was talking about education earlier. This is a publication for um, schools, and it's a, it's a book you can read two ways, yes? You know it. Um, so you turn it around, you can read the Easter Rising story, um, and flip it up, or the story of Winifred Carney and Billy McFazine, the um, BC winner. Um, my reservation about it, I suppose, is that it can allow you to read only one way. If you choose to, you're not forced to read two ways rather than seeing entire, at the one time, multiple different strands to the Irish story. And it rather reflects, I think, the, um, what doesn't work with A.E.'s poem as well. Here's one thing, here's the other. As is often the case, poetry tends to be ahead of its time, so that within it, and as I've partly been trying to show, we find multiple strands, consciously or unconsciously, at work. For all the post-war or post-69 attempts at commemorative inclusivity, the results are sometimes less nuanced than the ways in which poets were attuned to and in dialogue with each other in 1916 itself. If there are multiple ironies and contradictions embedded in those relations, as I've tried to suggest, between figures such as Pierce or Brooke or Yeats or Kipling, in all the overlaps and links between them, they are ones surely as well, those ironies, complexity, complexities to embrace rather than forget. Going back to Heaney, all the strains crisscross, he says. They are only useless, I think, if we fail to acknowledge they exist both as a strain in its obvious sense and often a sectarian one in ways that are visible at the time and now. But there's also, if we follow through the musical motif of Heaney's poem, something to be gained in reading this kind of crisscross I've been exploring as the strains of both harmony and counterpoint in the literature of the time. Thank you.